Skating across the floor, she let the warmth and the pounding disco beat wash over her, bringing her back to reality. The cold in her hands and toes faded away, but the air guitar man's words continued to echo in her mind. It's starting. The year of blood. Cameron Rubik, Disco Death Trap. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And I'm your other host, Rachel. Joining us today, we have Devin, who is known online as the Indie Insomniac. As an upcoming indie horror author, Devin brings insider knowledge to our discussion into the world of independently published horror on this episode of Books in the Freezer. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash booksinthefreezer. Happy listening! So Devin, thank you so much for joining us. Cool. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. Aw, shucks. <laughs> you have to say that. Kind of. But we're honestly really excited to have you here. We've been planning this episode for quite a while. Considering your title online is the Indian Insomniac, it just makes a lot of sense to have you join us for this one. Yeah, I'm also very tired right now too, so it's, it's fitting. <laughs> I'm glad we caught you at peak insomniac. <laughs> this is about when I'm like at my peak, peak alertness. So before we get to the discussion, we always want to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves. So for the listeners who don't know you, do you want to tell us about the kinds of horror stories you love to read? Yeah, sure. A pretty broad category, though. I mean, there's not really a type of horror that I don't enjoy to read or watch. Like slashers, exorcisms, undead, psychological, even comedic to an extent. There really isn't a facet of horror that doesn't, you know, pique my interest of some sort. Uh, I read Dan Simmons, Grant Masterson... Joe Lansdale, Ray Bradbury. It's a cliched answer, I know, but there really isn't a type of horror that I don't. And when did you start reading horror? Did you start as a kid? Funny story about that. My parents sent out the bookshelf that I had at home when I was a kid, and it had a whole slew of mass market paperbacks on there. And in my paperback copy of It, there was an Arthur bookmark, which should tell you how young I was when I was reading that book. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as I was old enough to read, I was reading Stephen King and Anne Rice especially. Your parents sound a little different than mine. Yeah, I don't think mom knew who Stephen King was when I was a a 12-year-old asking for his book. Okay, and now I'm going to ask a mean question, because as horror readers ourselves, we always get asked, what's the scariest book you've ever read? So I want to start turning this around and give our guests a chance to answer. So Devin, what is the scariest book that you have ever read? Is that not the worst question (laughs) ever? That's a horrifying question, yeah. Truth be told, I, I don't get scared, like, at all. And I think that's why I'm so obsessed and fascinated with horror, because I'm trying to. Truthfully, the only story that's ever scared me was watching Ernest Scared Stupid as a kid. The troll in that movie terrified me. But I do have an answer for your question. It's actually surprisingly nonfiction. It's The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. 
They're the paranormal investigators for the movie Annabelle, The Conjuring. They're really world-renowned psychics. So this book is like the roadmap for how a demon manifests and haunts homes and such. And the reason why I say it's scary is because when I was reading this, I was doing the audiobook, which was fantastic, and I was doing it at work. I work on a gas station on the highway. There's no civilization around me whatsoever, just woods and highway. And the power of it. So I was literally in the dark listening to this amazing demon nonfiction story while I was by myself oh my at like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It was amazing. I loved it. Yeah, I would have stopped listening to that immediately. <laughs> so it's more about the circumstances of how I read it, but the story itself was really well done. Annabelle itself comes from this book. There's a chapter on her specifically. Yeah, it's a really good read. That just sounds like a terrible situation. <laughs> so talking about independent publishing... You make the distinction between self-published and independent authors. Can you explain that difference? Strictly using the definitions of the two, they're both synonyms. They both mean the exact Mm -hmm. same thing. But the more authors I've been speaking with and the more, I guess, engaged in the community I've become, the more I'm seeing this trend of separating those two terms. Self-publishing technically is the correct term. If it's not done by a traditional publisher, it's a self-published book. Anyone not backed by a publisher, basically. However, the term itself carries the stigma to it, where if a book is self-published, people believe it's inferior or amateurish. This is the kind of the thought process people have. So the authors who take this incredibly seriously, they understand you need to follow all the proper steps to put out a good product, are still getting lumped in with this self-published kind of classification. So like you have the person that spent two years, multiple drafts, got a professional cover, got a professional edit, being categorized in the same category as the 21-year-old college student who thought, you know, he'd be a star writing a story about his high school experience, as though that was actually an interesting thing to talk about. You mentioned the stigma against independently published authors. What would you say to those readers who are maybe afraid to pick up an indie book, or why should someone pick up an indie book, in your opinion? Okay, there's kind of two things here. Uh, So for the readers who haven't actually given any thought as to whether their books they read are actually indie or traditionally published, then I would say cheers, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Because like I said earlier, the goal of an indie author, as opposed to a self-published, is to be indistinguishable from a traditional book. You, It shouldn't be look any different from anything else you see in the marketplace. You want an eye-catching cover, but it's still got to look professional. So if you're a reader just going through the store, grabbing what you think looks cool, you know, sounds interesting, then you're already doing it right. Because you're unknowingly exposing yourself to indie authors and passing on all the self-published ones that, you know, their covers are made in MS Paint. So to that person, I'd just say, you know, just be open-minded. Read what you want to read, and don't be deterred if you do find out that something is an indie book. That's the main thing I would say. If the author went through the work to make the presentation look proper, then the work inside should reflect that as well. But for those who, you know, they have that stigma against indie publishing, I completely understand it. Because I would say that, you know, 80-90% of the stuff that's on the marketplace now that's in self-published or indie published book is trash. Because it's so easy to upload stuff. So I understand the stigma. But what I can do is promise you that you're not going to find more variety of work anywhere else than you'll find in indie publishing. There are entire genres that are pretty much exclusive to indie publishing. Extreme horror, for one. This is not something that I'm into, but if you are into incredibly graphic violence, vulgarity, vivid descriptions, horrific acts, then extreme horror is the genre you would want to scratch that itch, and you're only going to find that as an indie because it's too extreme for a traditional publisher to make any money off of it. It's too much of a niche audience. 
Right. I imagine the traditional publishers wouldn't even want to touch it with a stick. They would be too worried about the PR around it. Yeah. While an indie author, you know, really gets to make their own choices in terms of what kind of content they want to put out. Well, exactly. An indie is not looking to sell thousands and thousands of copies. If they sell a handful, they, they did their job. And that's all they really need. So, I mean, to speak to the variety, last month in, you know, in preparation for this episode, I read a book called A Foster Homes and Flies by Chad Lutz. This is about a 12-year-old boy who's obsessively studying for a spelling bee at school because he chickened out last year and he was determined not to miss it this year. In the first chapter, he wakes up and finds his mother sitting in the chair in front of the TV, dead. So, and right before he's about to call somebody, he changes his mind when he realizes he's going to miss that spelling bee people find out. So, this book is about him keeping his mother's death a secret while he's getting ready for the spelling bee. It's not a book you would see, you know, done by Simon & Schuster. Another one, Camp Carnage by Elliot Arthur Cross. This is a gay slasher novel. The characters are all at one of those religious camps designed to uh, cure gayness. And, you know, in standard horror fashion, they start dropping one by one. So again, these are not the kind of stories you're going to find done on a, on a traditional level, trying to be put in every Barnes & Noble in the country. This is a very niche audience, but you're going to find stories here you're not going to find anywhere else. So as long as you know how to find them, where to look, and, you know, you read the samples of the books, you can find a lot of amazing things with any publishing. So speaking of that, do you have any tips on where to find them or what to look for? All right. So this is something even I struggled with. It's really not easy to find indie books because, well, I mean, like I said, the best indies are trying to present themselves as traditionally published. So if they're doing their job right, you don't know if they're mm -hmm. indie or not. So a lot of the time, they'll publish their books under a business name just to come off as being a publisher, like uh, shadowpublications.com. This technically is an LLC by Polly Cooley. Anything he puts out that isn't done through a small press or an, a publisher that he's working with is done under Shadow Publications. Because when people look for it, they don't see the name, they find the company. And it looks more professional. I've definitely run into that. And we even had that for one of the picks we're going to be talking about later in this episode. I ended up having to direct message the author on Twitter to find out if that was actually his publisher. And I know not everyone can do that. I don't want to recommend that everyone just starts messaging all their authors and saying, do you publish yourself? Are you indie? Well, yeah, it's hard to find sometimes. Like with uh, Paul Cooley's website, you've got to do some digging in there and realize that the only author they're talking about is him to know that it is just him doing it. So with that being understood, the two best ways to find indie books... It's simply, like I said, to keep an open mind when someone recommends the book to you. Someone introduces you to a new author. If you find out they're indie, don't let that be a deterrent. Because uh, word of mouth is basically the backbone of the success of the indie author. This is how they get their audience. The other way, it's a little more tedious. What you would do, I'm actually going to do it real time. So one of you, give me one of your favorite books. Head full of ghosts. <laughs> Knew you were going to say that. Big surprise there, Stephanie. So I'm going for Head Full of Ghosts, looking in the Kindle store. Clicking on it, scroll down, and you're gonna find the charts that it's charting in right now. Headful of Ghosts is in Kindle Store, eBooks, Literature, Fiction, Horror, United States. It's also in Psychological Literary Fiction. So I'm just gonna click on the Horror United States, and then you get like a top hundred chart of that mm -hmm. sales charts. Look through here for something with five dollars or below. Good chance that's gonna be an indie author. Indie authors are not like traditional. They understand that people don't want to pay ten bucks for a digital copy of a book. So an average indie book is going to be between a dollar and three dollars, usually no more than five. So if you find something less than that, chances are it's indie. Then when you find a book cover you like under the right price, scroll down 
it should say Amazon Digital Services sold by under the product details. And if that's the case, then 80% chance it's an indie author. So not only do you find indies this way, but you find indies in very similar genres to the stories you want to find that way. It's not a perfect method, but it's the most algorithmic one I can give you in the short term. Yeah, I never thought about doing that. I know we had a lot of conversations, Devin, when we were preparing for this episode. I kept messaging you just saying, is this indie? Is that indie? And I pretty much was just sending you like <laughs> titles of books and then making you do the research for me. So I appreciate that you're giving people tips because my other suggestion besides messaging the authors was to say, just go as Devin and make him do your <laughs> research because that was how I prepared for this episode. And I definitely think Amazon's a good resource because I used Kindle Unlimited. I got a month subscription and I just went wild with it because I would say that a good portion of the titles that are available through Kindle Unlimited are indie, just kind of for that same reason that they're kind of that low cost, easy access. So I discovered so many indie authors, particularly in the horror genre in the last couple months, just by having a subscription. And I'll probably like have a Kindle Unlimited subscription on and off for this podcast just because it's such a good way to find these like weird niche books that fit perfectly into all of our episode topics. With Kindle Unlimited, you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit without realizing it, I think. Oh, good. <laughs> I love when I do that. A big, big portion of the income indies make, especially fiction writers, are from ebook sales on Amazon. And if you're an indie, there's, again, probably 80-90% chance you're in Kindle Unlimited because that's what fiscally makes sense. And does that tie into the strategy where they'll often make the first couple books in a series free or really low cost? So you're able to kind of try out or sample a larger portion of the author's work? Because I know I'll do sample chapters, but sometimes that's not quite enough to give me an idea if I'm going to love someone. But if I try like with their first book on Kindle Unlimited and I like it, I don't mind throwing some money behind that and I'll go and actually buy the rest of their books. Yeah, that's one of the like the key strategies. Not even just the first or free, but Kindle Unlimited in general. Because to be in Kindle Unlimited, you get signed up for what's called KDP Select, Kindle Direct Publishing Select. It's basically saying you're going to go exclusive to Amazon. This is the only place you'll put your book in exchange to be in Kindle Unlimited, and you'll get better visibility on the website. So most of the authors I know are in Kindle Unlimited, and they're saying like a, there's a 60-40 split between the income they make from Kindle Unlimited and sales. So like it, it's pretty much half their income coming in this way. It's getting kind of outdated now because it's such a widespread known <laughs> tactic, but it still does kind of work. You put your first book free, and what that does, it creates a marketing funnel. People get in the book for free, and then they see the second, third, and fourth books are only there for $2, $3, and then they go on through it. This is how Indies essentially survive. There's not a lot of real notes that are grindstone Indies that make a lot of money off a single book. It's more about making a bunch of consistent sales over a whole backlog of books. Realistically, you don't want to write a book and make it sell the gangbusters and sell thousands of copies. That's not realistically what you're expecting. You want to have multiple books, multiple things out. So that they can get a uh, like a constant stream of income more so than a lightning strike. I see. That makes sense. Like for the indie authors that I know at this point, I would pretty much yeah keep coming back to their work now that I've got hooked in. I don't know. They did their good job from a marketing perspective because now I want to keep supporting them. So I don't know. All I'm finding <laughs> out is that I've been suckered into all these marketing <laughs> schemes, but they're totally working. And I'm more than happy to support all these authors I'm going to be talking about. Well, I mean, you're also getting a lot better value, too. I mean, you're spending, again, probably 2 and $3 a piece sometimes on these books, as opposed to, like, the $15, $20 ebooks you get from 
traditionally published authors. Oh, exactly. And I mean, you're Canadian too, Devin. So you see like how much a hardcover costs around oh, here. Oh, God, yeah. Like spending $40 on one book, that only lasts me an afternoon of reading. I read over 150 books a year. So I do need my reading to be cost effective so I can spend money on other things like food and gas. <laughs> Those aren't that necessary. It's optional. <laughs> do I want to eat today or do I want to read? Although, who am I kidding? That's actually a tough choice. So Devin, part of the reason that you are so knowledgeable is because you are in the process of this yourself, right? You're currently in the process of independently publishing your first book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, basically my first book to be published is going to be actually released uh, near the end of the month, 31st of May. Actually, right now, I do have it up for pre-order, went up for pre-order on the 28th of April. I'll admit, it has been the single most terrifying thing I've done to date. I spent the last year or so just completely immersing myself in like indie publishing, listening to anybody that's willing to tell me anything about the industry. Can we hear the name of it? The book is called Corbin. It's the first episode of Kruger's. The intention behind it was, it was going to be a serialized story told as a television series in episodic form for six episodes of a season, so on and so forth. It's become a little bigger than that, so I'm not sure if I want to stick with that format. But yeah, Corbin is the name of the book, part of the Kruger series. Basically, the premise is, what if Freddy Krueger from the Nightmare on Elm Street series wasn't just a like a unique kind of thing that happened, but instead was like, a type of creature that exists in the world. So a Kruger is basically a dream monster, I guess is the easiest way to describe it. Something that preys on people as they sleep. Um, they each look differently, they behave differently, and it's going to be kind of like watching an episode of Supernatural TV show. Kind of a monster of the week kind of thing for each of the books, but with an overarching story going through all six. They're short books too, like Corbin's coming in at about 45,000 words, which is just a little bit above what the Hugos call a novel. So it's kind of like just a long novella. But that's that's where I'm at right now. That sounds fantastic. I love serialized stories. So I'm excited if you keep that format. And I do tend to prefer shorter horror. I think it's a little easier to pack a punch without dragging a story on for like hundreds and hundreds of pages. So I'm very excited to read that. We'll definitely be putting some links in this show notes for sure. I will say, though, that although I intended to write a horror story, then the first chapter I have been told is quite horrifying. It goes more into like a darker urban fantasy. Again, kind of like a supernatural vibe where it's as much action with horror elements than horror. I'm, I'm terrified and excited about it at the same time. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I'm also going to give you the link where I'm literally just giving the book away for free for anybody that wants it. Ooh. When it goes up for sale, I'm not sure if I want to price it yet at $1.99 or, or $0.99. Cents. But in the meantime, it is free right now, an early copy of it, for anybody that's seen my BookTube channel or listening to this podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Devin. I know a lot of our listeners would definitely want to check it out. And they'll have to report back. So everyone will have to give a scariness rating if it's going to be room temperature, if we're going to be throwing this one in the fridge. Uh, I got high hopes. <laughs> I Definitely can tell you're a little nervous. It's tough to put yourself out there like that. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, this book should have been out at least six months to a year ago. Honestly, it's me dragging my feet, always thinking, okay, I can fix this. I can do this better. I can do this better. And this is a thing I've been told all indies do go through. Some point, you just got to put it out there, take your punches of what you screwed up on, and move on to the next book. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I got to get this out and get some real good feedback from actual consumers and then use what I learned from that to the second book, then the third, then the fourth, and so on and so forth. 
So we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but I think it's interesting that you specifically set out to be an indie author because I was always under the assumption that the only reason that authors were indie was because they couldn't get their dream publishing gig. But you have been very specific of what you wanted to go for and indie publishing is what you want, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Why is that? I've never been interested in traditionally publishing. Like, I've known traditional published authors before who have crazy horror stories about things that happened to them with it. See, the thing with traditional publishing is if you get that deal and it doesn't work out, you're done. You have no more clout. You barely have a chance of a career anymore after that point. If they take your book and it flops, then you might as well just call it quits there and get a different job. And especially now with the advent of ebooks and Amazon and just indie publishing in general, traditional publishers are getting more and more kind of uh, put their back against the wall because something they don't want to admit is indie authors are making as much money as most of the traditionally published authors. I remember that's surprising. You can really make a living wage if you are successful as an indie author, right? Yes. Oh, without a doubt. I would be so bold as to say it's easier. You got to put in a lot more work. Don't get me wrong on that front. But it's easier to make a living as an indie than a traditionally published author. Because indies, you get more of what you put into it. If you wanted to talk numbers, if your book is on Amazon priced between $2.99, I think, and $9.99, it's a 70% royalty rate. If it's any more or less than that, then it's 35%. So when you have, say, Stephen King's book up there traditionally published for $15 on an ebook, it's 35% of that royalty is going to the publisher he's getting 15-20% of that and then splitting his share, 15-20% of his share with his agent. With an indie author, I'm putting it up for four bucks and I'm getting 70% of that four bucks. So I could get by making a living off, you know, a hundred books a week, maybe maybe a couple hundred books a month, make a comparable wage of what I'm making now, my minimum wage job, as Stephen King would make off, you know, 500, 600. To sell, you don't need to sell as many units because you're making better return on it. But with me, I've always been someone that likes to be in control of what I'm doing. With traditional publishing, you don't get a say in the cover. You don't get really a say in, in the direction of it. If they don't like where it's going, they just kick you to the curb. With indie publishing, you have your hand in everything. I don't know how to do cover design, so I went out and got somebody to do a cover for me. I have a professional editor that looks at my work. But it's still my direction. I get to final say of what goes up and what doesn't. And in the end, it's all on me. And this is this is what attracted me to indie author. Also, I'm not someone who wants to be a New York Times bestseller. I don't want to be sitting next to George Martin and J.K. Rowling at some convention someday. I would just like to have a 9 to 5 where I can just wake up in the morning, come to my computer, write some words, Every couple of months, put a book out and have a check coming in that I can pay my bills and have a good life with my family. And that's it. That is enough for me. And that is way more easy to attain as an indie author than with the be a traditionally published one. So it's about the expectations. I mean, there are lots of indie authors making lots of money, but you don't hear about them because they make it over a bunch of different books. I want just a job where I write for a living and that's it. I don't need to be glamorous. You're not looking to become the next celebrity author? <laughs> no. Um, I have all the respect in the world for people like Hugh Howey and Andy Weir and these self-publishing like icons that paved the way for all of this that we have right now. But I don't really, I wouldn't turn it down, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> if, if Kruger's was to go viral and, you know, New Line Cinema doesn't send me a cease and desist for the name, 
I would love that, sure, but it's not something that I really desire. If I can just make a living with my writing, that's that's good enough for me. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're down to earth and you won't throw us to the curb and we'll be those girls you used to know before you were famous. <laughs> well, it's probably about time we talk some book recommendations and I had to restrain myself because there are so many amazing indie horror authors I wanted to talk about. So I did only pick two for this section, but I'll definitely be including more indie horror authors in future episodes, so stay tuned for that. But my first pick is Disco Death Trap by Cameron Rubik, and we picked this as the quote for the episode. And this is so much fun to talk about because the synopsis is pretty much hilarious. Set on December 31st, 1980, this story follows a group of teenagers who agreed to celebrate New Year's Eve at an all-night roller skating party. However, what they don't realize is that this particular roller skating rink was built over top of buried dead people. And this land was at one time a graveyard. So when a mysterious old man comes and warns them that the year of blood is about to begin, the teenagers don't really take him very seriously. However, that all changes when a killer shows up and starts slicing people down. Is that not a lot of fun? I have a strange idea of fun, but I think that synopsis is hilarious. <laughs> that sounds deadly. As you can probably guess, this book is basically written to be like the book version of a classic slasher movie, which I remember hearing that it's one of the author's favorite kinds of movies, unsurprisingly. So he went out of his way to write a story like that. And this is exactly what it sounds. It's a fun, action-packed read that doesn't take itself too seriously. But instead, the author is really playing around with all those classic tropes that come into slasher movies. And so it's ridiculous. Like at one point, the killer ends up on the rink with roller skates on. And at the same time, it is very gruesome. There is a very high body count. I want to call this book a freezer book, even though it didn't scare me, but it was gruesome enough that I couldn't recommend it safely to most people if they don't normally read horror or if they don't enjoy gore. So I think I have to put this one in the freezer, even though it didn't personally scare me. It was just very <laughs> disgusting in the best possible way. <laughs> and you know I enjoy that stuff, so take that with a grain of salt. But there's just a lot of blood, like I mean a lot of blood. But at the same time, it's very nostalgic, which I love. It's set right at the end of the disco era in 1980. So there are tons of nods to songs by the Bee Gees and roller skates, all of that. And I specifically wanted to talk about this book because the author has made some really interesting choices. He is an author who does his own cover art, which Devin mentioned can be a terrible thing in a lot of cases when it comes to indie horror. But we'll link in the cover art and he does a great job. He paints all of his covers and they just look like classic horror movies. So I think it's a case that he manages his own brand and does it really well. And the other thing that's really unique about Cameron Rubik's books is at the time that I received copies of both his books, they were only available in paperback. At the time, you could not get an e-copy which I thought was really interesting as an indie horror author, just because I tend to assume that all indie books are available as eBooks at this day and age. But because he really goes for that classic nostalgic feel, he really wanted his books to be paperbacks. 
However, as of this coming Friday on May 25th, his one other book, Kill River, is supposed to be available on eCopy. But until then, the only way to get a hold of his books is paper copies, which I was actually curious what Devin would think of that because that almost goes counterintuitive to a lot of the standard indie practices you were talking about. It does. Actually, that's one of the first things that just attracted my eye when I took a look at it. It's a gutsy move for <laughs> sure, hey? It's a really interesting choice. It's the first thing that caught my eye when I looked at his page here. However, like it really does fit with the aesthetics he has here. Like, And the same thing you said about the cover. Doing your own cover is the death knell for some indie authors. But his aesthetics for Disco Death Trap especially really fits the kind of atmosphere you described the book actually has. So everything you say goes along with that story itself. So I can see why he made the choice. It is a bold decision, but it's seemingly working for him. And one other thing I want to mention about him as a publisher is that he actually does his own book binding, which sounds like the most time-consuming, exhaustive process. He was saying that he had a, a while where he was getting a lot of orders all at once. And so by the end of it, I think his wrists were sore because he had done so much <laughs> book binding. It's an interesting process. He put up a link on his blog so you can actually see how it's done. And is it again, something I thought was like super interesting, super unique. The fact is the book that I have was actually compiled by him. But at the same time, all I could think was, oh my gosh, that's so much work. All those books are sent with love. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds really interesting. He's definitely a wish list author for me. I have a birthday coming up, so I might treat myself to some of his books. I will be getting Kill River. Yeah, Kill River is the one I want to get. Yeah, you should. I'm reading it right now, and it's so much fun. My next pick is Pen Pal by Dathan Auerbach. I know Devin was talking earlier about like indie success stories, and I will get to that part of it later. But if you don't know, the synopsis is about a man who is looking back on terrifying and bizarre occurrences from his childhood. And it becomes terrifying when you realize that all of these strange events seem to have a thread in common. So the thing with Pen Pal was that it originally was a series of creepypastas on Reddit. People tried to convince the author to publish them into a novel. So this book was actually crowdfunded into publication. You guys both read this, right? I have. I didn't quite understand <laughs> it, but I think that's more me than the book. I've read it like a while ago. I feel like this is a book you need to know the story going into it because it really does read like a book of compiled creepypastas. But Dathan Auerbach does have a new book coming out, I think, later this year called Badman. I read this book at night and it gave me the creeps. I had to have my coworker walk me to my car for a few days after I finished reading this because I found it so unsettling. So for me, this was a freezer book because stalker stories give me the absolute creeps. Those can be super scary because you're always looking over yeah. your shoulder and it's like, it could happen. It could happen. That's the worst. Yeah. I mean, it's not paranormal, yeah, supernatural. That's what it is. Nothing's more scary than what's possible, right? Exactly. So what's your pick, Devin? Well, first one's going to be a little bit of a cheat because technically it's a small press book. It's Stillwater by Justin R. McCumber. It's put up by Griffinwood Press, but that's a company of one guy. So it counts. That's why Indian small press are kind of lumped together often. We'll allow it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Especially this one. This one is the one I knew I was going to recommend before even looking at anything else. And as an indie fashion, it's as much about the author as anything else. Justin McCumber created the Dead Robot Society podcast about 10 years ago now. And it's one of the first things I found that got me on my path to being a writer. And he passed away in the end of last year. So... It's kind of a sentimental pick for me because I wouldn't be where I am with my writing career without 
his podcast and actually speaking with him directly. I actually beta read the sequel to this book. The the book itself, Stillwater, it's the first book in what he calls the Gallows Investigation series. There's two books in the series. Stillwater is a throwback to kind of Stephen King, Americana kind of setting. It's a small town in West Virginia called Stillwater. And one of the residents of Stillwater comes home after being gone for quite a while. And what happened is miners in a coal mine unearthed some kind of ancient evil in the town coming into the water and such and it's all about you know corruption and psychological headcase it's very heavily inspired by like old stephen king horror a mix with a bit of lovecraftian interesting to be honest as far as horror goes i would probably fit the summer between room temperature and fridge maybe closer to fridge so like mildly chilled yeah like it's again you can see the inspiration from horror kind of icons like yeah stephen king the very main kind of community except for this is West Virginia. If you're particularly susceptible to this like psychological kind of everything around you is evil, but it's an intangible evil kind of thing, then it could be a little scarier. But it's a mild chill of a book. This is Stillwater by Justin R. McCumber. I'll definitely have to check that out if that was your inspiration. I always love to know those books that really leave that kind of impact on someone and really shapes kind of who they are as a reader or in your case, as a writer. Yeah. Like I said, Justin himself was a huge inspiration for a lot of writers, and his passing last year was pretty hard on a lot of people. If you get through Stillwater, I recommend it just for the sake of getting to Fragile, the second book, because that one's amazing. So my second pick is Video Night by Adam Caesar, and this book is set in the 1980s, because apparently all of my books are set in the 1980s. (laughs) Apparently it's the only decade that exists for me. Nostalgic. I was about to say something about that. <laughs> I just noticed, just like, maybe I should read some books set in different decades. Well, the best horror movies were in the 80s, so... Works for me. This particular story follows a couple of teenage boys who rent a videotape every week to watch it on one of the boys' fancy new VHS players. And this particular week is a little bit different because they've decided to invite over a few girls and turn it into a bit of a date night. However, these teenagers are unaware that an alien life form has infected the town, and soon their video date night is crashed by an unwanted visitor. I am a sucker for entertaining horror, if you can't tell. I love these plots that are maybe a little bit campy or cheesy, but in a very good way. It's definitely my kind of horror. I particularly love the chapters told from the perspective of the aliens who were intelligently scheming ways to covertly take over the town. And of course, I loved all the 80s nostalgia, everything from the VHS tapes to going back to rental stores. Hopefully everyone listening to this is old enough to know what a blockbuster is. And I first heard about this book from watching the author's YouTube channel, which is the reason I wanted to talk about Adam Caesar's books particularly because he has a channel on YouTube that is primarily focused around horror movies and also does recommendations for books as well. And I think that his channel is very authentic, that he provides horror-related content to his viewers and does it in a way to kind of foster interactions with like-minded readers who might be possibly interested in picking up his books. But he's really good about not actually coming across as promoting his own books and really focuses on actually providing good horror content. And so he never reached out to me in any way to review any of his books, but simply because he seemed like a cool guy, I liked watching his videos, I got some good recommendations. When I got a Kindle Unlimited subscription, I was motivated to go check him out for myself. And so I think he's done a really good job from a social media perspective. In terms of the book, I would put it as room temperature. 
While there were some gross moments involving the aliens, it was definitely more entertaining than terrifying. And I think it can be pretty safely read by anyone who watches those kind of movies and are looking to read an alien attack in book form. Have either of you watched his channel? I've watched a couple of his horror movie recommendations for specific things. I have not heard of him until right now, but I'm looking at his channel at the moment. Yeah, like I said, he just has like good content and he's done like books and movie recommendations. And so when I found out he was an author, I was like, hey, why not support him? Which again is me falling for all the good <laughs> marketing, but it's like an authentic way of just really connecting with people. Like I said, I'm happy to support authors like that. Yeah. As like YouTubers, I'm sure you guys get lots of requests and you see the pushy ones that are just, hey, I, I watch your channel and I think you would really love my romance book that takes place in the 1920s even though they watch a bunch of your horror reviews. (laughs) You get these really awkward requests that clearly don't know me, don't know my channel, don't know my reading taste, and are just making these really pushy requests. What you're talking about there is authors who look at your name and your sub count and then send you the email, a stock email they have to everybody. And that's, again, just not good practice. But anyway, moving on, I will talk about my next book that I absolutely loved and i know rachel did too spoiler alert so i'll just get to it that is the nightmare room by chris Sorensen, and this is going to be the first in a series called the messy man series and the synopsis for this is pete larson is an audiobook narrator who moves back to his hometown with his wife in hopes of putting a tragedy behind them they move into a farmhouse in the outskirts of town and when pete goes to set up his recording studio in the basement some sketchy stuff starts happening weird sounds start showing up in his recording and he sees a dark shadow figure around the house. I really enjoyed this book. I loved the idea of the character as an audiobook narrator, which the author himself is an audiobook narrator. So it was very realistic, just like the different stuff you have to do that you wouldn't think about. And as someone who listens to a lot of audiobooks, it was really fun to get the process a little bit of what goes on. And this was a book that Rachel can tell you about, but it was a haunted house book that she liked. I know it's my new favorite haunted house story, so it's converted me. I think what worked so well for this one is that it's very character focused with a lot of emotional depth. Definitely. Which is good because I'm not really scared or interested in just creepy old houses, but when you start to have the story be more about the family living in the home, then I get interested. And this one really hit home for me. I loved it so much. So I almost encourage Stephanie to read this knowing this episode was coming up because I wanted to include a third book so I feel really sneaky about that I basically made you recommend the third book (laughs) she got strong armed into it no but you're right right when you get in the characters have just immediate depth and I am here for this man and his wife and I want to know what the tragedy was and I want to know about all of his relationships and his relationship to this town and I was just immediately sucked into what was going on which as you know, as a reader, is a great feeling when you just open a book and you are immediately sucked in by chapter two. I had the exact same experience. So I am definitely looking forward to continuing on with the series. Where would you put it rating wise? I would put it in the fridge. There was definitely some creepy scenes and just the idea of having like a soundproof box you lock yourself in in the basement just freaks me out (laughs) on so many levels. But there was outside of that some just legitimately creepy scenes. How about you? Where did it fall for you? I was also thinking fridge. It was pretty creepy at times. The basement for sure creeped me out. 
So that was The Nightmare Room by Chris Sorensen. So my second book is actually one that I read specifically in getting ready for this episode. It's Craven Manor by Darcy Coates. It is a kind of a haunted house story. It's a bit different. I'm actually just going to read a synopsis. Daniel is desperate for a job when someone slides a note under his door offering him the groundskeeper position at an old estate. It seems too good to be true. Alarm bells start ringing when he arrives at Craven Manor. The mansion's front door hangs open. Leaves and cobwebs coat the marble foyer. It's clear no one has lived there in a long time. But an envelope waits for him inside the doorway. It contains money and promises more. Daniel is desperate. Against his better judgment, he moves into the groundskeeper's cottage behind the crypt. He's determined to ignore the strange occurrences that plague the estate. But when a candle flickers to life in the abandoned tower window, Daniel realizes Craven Manor is hiding a terrible secret, one that threatens to bury him with it. So, on the surface, this is just a regular haunted house story. But the character of Daniel himself is what sets it apart. He is actually a really compelling character. Kind of an altruistic kind of guy. Like, you'll root for this character, but not in the Paragon kind of unrealistic way. He's a very believable, yet likable character. He actually lives, aside from the house, in a groundskeeper's cabin. And his job is to basically help restore the house. He never meets his employer. And random stuff starts happening. But it's not your conventional haunted house story. I'll just put it that way. That might be a good one for me to pick up then. I was thinking about actually telling you that after I read it. It does border away from horror at some point. But there are still, again, a lot of very horror kind of elements to it. As far as where the rating goes, it would be, a, I'd say, a solid fridge for most people. The scenes that do try to provoke fear, provoke that fight or flight kind of response, they are really powerful, really well done. And the story itself is pretty cohesive. And there are plot twists that I actually didn't see coming, which is really rare, especially for indie novels. It's, they kind of go derivative a lot of the time. So, yeah, like the biggest compliment I can give this book is that while reading it with my friend, her biggest compliment was she would not have known it was an indie book if I didn't tell her. And that's mainly, again, what they all aim for. So that's my praise for Craven Manor by Darcy Coates. So finally, we want to end our episode talking about some chilling obsessions, which is the new name for our section talking about some non-bookish horror things that we're loving at the moment. So, Devin, do you want to go first and tell us what your current chilling obsession is? <laughs> well, I have a lot of those. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> but I'm going to recommend a tabletop pen and paper role-playing Ooh, game. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Last month, White Wolf Publishing announced they're doing a fifth edition of Vampire the Masquerade. So, my obsession would be just Worlds of Darkness in general. If you're familiar with Dungeons & Dragons, it's the same kind of thing. You have a character sheet, you roll dice, you have a storyteller telling you the story... And it's a game that you play all purely imagination with dice. But World of Darkness is a game that's about 25 years old now, I think, going on 30. And it takes place in the real world, but it's a world where there's vampires and werewolves and mummies and, and all the horror kind of monsters you could expect. And you're playing as characters in them. And with Vampire the Masquerade, you're actually playing as vampires in this world. It's very telling me now because with the 5th edition coming out, it's going to be brand new, easier rules, more streamlined stuff. And this is the most addicting game type I've ever played in my life. So with a new edition coming out, it's a great time to get in on it. My friends play Dungeons and Dragons, and I enjoy the excuse to get together, have drinks, all that. 
but I really don't care about orcs and elves <laughs> and all that fantasy stuff. I know my group of friends is very disappointed in me right now. Oh, yeah. So to take that kind of gameplay, but then to make it horror sounds exactly up my alley because that's always my complaint is that it's not really scary. And I'm kind of obsessed with horror right now, probably because <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> well, here's a fun fact. Before I was starting to write, I was running a World of Darkness game, a Mortals game where you're playing as normal people. And it took place in my city here in St. John's, Newfoundland. And by playing the game with those players, I created a fictional city instead of St. John's. And piece by piece, as they were going to different places and I was building it up and creating different places for them to go and monsters to fight. That's the world that my fiction takes place in now. I did not know that. I can tell you the mayor of my city, the way the economy is, the politicians, everything about it. Because I've been playing World of Darkness so long in Janus is the name of the city. And yeah, that's where Krugers first showed up. That's where all my novels take place. So it's basically my world building. So it's a very dear game to me. We play every Monday. That sounds so fun. Yeah. And that's a good idea. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> my wife lost her mind when she was reading an early copy of my novel. And she's like, oh my God, that's my character. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, look, it's me. Because <laughs> they're canon. They're in my stories now, right? That's awesome. I recommend anybody, if you haven't played it, even if you don't like gaming, you have to try a pen and paper RPG at some point. Yeah, I wanted to, but like Rachel, I'm not a big fantasy person. So the thought of playing as like elves and orcs never appealed to me. But, you know, the appeal of hanging out with friends and doing a game like that is something I'd be interested in doing. So that'd be perfect if I could find a good group of people. So something I've been obsessed with recently is Small Town Horror, which is a podcast. I'm really into audio drama horror podcasts, so I found another one. I'm noticing this. <laughs> in this one, the main character in this podcast goes back to his hometown of Creighton, Minnesota after 18 years. He was abducted when he was 18 years old after playing a game in the woods called The Sinner's Game. He was let go. He came back to town and went to the police, but nobody believed him. So he just left town and never looked back. And so his father's died and he has to come back to town to settle his father's affairs. And he starts podcasting everything that's going on. And I thought it sounded kind of cheesy at the beginning going into this. I have not binged a podcast that fast in so long. I binged two seasons in like two nights. I could not get enough of it. I don't know. There was just something about it that I couldn't stop. I had to find out what was happening next. And it's kind of one of those things where like, I'm telling you it's an audio drama, but he plays it very realistically. He's like, yeah, I'm back in my hometown. I just thought it would be therapeutic to, you know, podcast this and like, oh, someone's knocking at my door. I'm living out of this hotel room. And it's very authentic. So I think that's part of it. You just totally buy into it. So that is a small town horror. Well, you have a good track record for podcasts because... I found Limetown through you and Mabel through you. So yeah, I'll check in Smalltown for sure. So my chilling obsession is They're Watching, which is a movie that I found on Netflix. It came out in 2016. And it's a horror comedy about a fictional popular home improvement TV show that is clearly meant to be a spoof of House Hunters Internationals. Right off the bat, I was interested because I am obsessed with the actual reality TV show. And so when I found this, I was immediately hooked in. In this TV episode of this show, the crew is headed back to a remote village in a place called Moldova to film the follow-up to a segment about an American homeowner, Becky, who transforms this rundown shack of a place into this beautiful artist's studio. However, when they arrive, 
the locals are unusually hostile towards them, and of course, things get crazy from there. Because it's recorded from the perspective of the film crew, everything basically looks like you're watching an episode of a normal reality TV show, and it was just, again, entertaining horror, which tends to be my flavor these days. I've had a lot of stress in my personal life, so maybe that's why I'm leaning towards more funny horror as opposed to stressful realistic horror. The ending I have to say was absolutely ridiculous and it was over the top with some crazy CGI but I still enjoyed it overall and again if anyone else is obsessed with House Hunters International which yes I know is crazy fake I do recommend this one. It was a fun way to spend a couple hours. I didn't know House Hunters International was fake. Oh it's so fake. They've already rented or bought the place. Oh, yeah, all of them are fake. Don't burst my bubble. <laughs> I'll be quiet now. So thanks so much, Devin, for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Since we started the podcast, this is an episode we wanted to record because we really wanted to put a spotlight to indie horror. And we knew right away that you were the guest that we wanted to have for this episode. And yeah, it's just been a lot of fun to talk about all of our favorites and get a little bit of insider knowledge into the publishing world. I'm very flattered. That was awesome. Yeah, we had been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a long time. So I'm glad we finally got to do it. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We publish episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at BooksFreezerPod or on Instagram at BooksInTheFreezer. You can send us an email at BooksInTheFreezer at gmail.com. The show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are on BooksInTheFreezer.wordpress.com. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters, Laura, Liz, Devin, Sarai, Roger, Emily, Denise, Anthony, Elizabeth, and PT. If you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, please be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app like iTunes or Stitcher. It helps people find the podcast. So we did get some new iTunes reviews. Our first review is from Manwitch08, five stars, wonderful. I recently found these ladies and have zoomed through every episode. I've always loved reading horror novels since reading Carrie when I was 12. I've been out of touch with them recently, so having all these recommendations is wonderful. Listening to this podcast, I can tell how much they love their subject matter. Can't recommend this one enough. Thank you so much. The next one from my mock muck, five stars, horror and books, the podcast I've been waiting for. In the vast podcast genre selections, I have yet to find one that is solely about horror books until now. Thank you to the creators of Books in the Freezer for having such a love of horror and books to make this podcast. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. And last one from Antrat1965, filled with tons of good recommendations. I really love horror in all its forms. This podcast talks in depth about books and sometimes movies that us horror fans might otherwise miss out on. It has become my most anticipated podcast. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or I recently started a bookish only Instagram at that's what she read. There's two A's in that's. Or you can find me on YouTube at that's what she read. And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at shades underscore orange or on YouTube at Instagram at the shades of orange. I'm on Twitter as well at at insomni reads. I-N-S-O-M-N-I-R-E-A-D-S. And if you search YouTube for Indie Insomniac, you'll find me there too. And we'll make sure to include a link to the free book for anyone who wants to check out Devin's upcoming release, Kruger's. That'll be available in the show notes on WordPress. So thank you very much and join us next time for Books in the Freezer.